Father, we thank you again for another day of life, another opportunity to get to know you better through this Bible study, through your word, through your Holy Spirit teaching us. Father, we just thank you and and understand that your thoughts are not our thoughts, that your ways are not our ways. As the heaven is higher than the earth, so are your ways and so are your thoughts so much above and beyond ours. So we know we cannot figure you out. But we do know that you know more than we do and that your ways and purposes are perfect and that they will be fulfilled even if we cannot understand them. And Father, we also know because your word tells us in the book of Isaiah that your word will not return void, that it will accomplish what you please, it will prosper in the thing to which you have sent it. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that you would accomplish your purposes here this morning among us as we look at the testing of Isaac, the tests that he encountered in this chapter, which is exclusively about him. And we know that we face similar tests Many, maybe different circumstances, but different tests and trials during our lives. So may we learn from him, his mistakes, and his uh, successes. And now I just pray that you would go before us, and may the Holy Spirit be the teacher, and may Christ get the glory. Amen. Well, the account of the life of Isaac is always, and we mentioned this in our lesson last week, it's always connected in one aspect or another to the life of someone else, such as his dynamic father Abraham, or his elder brother Ishmael, or his strong-willed active wife Rebecca, or his high-profile son Jacob. There's only one chapter in the book of Genesis which is given over to Isaac alone. You know, he is the, the central figure. And that chapter is the one before us this morning, Genesis chapter 26. It's interesting to learn that although Isaac lived the longest of the four patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, he lived the longest. Isaac lived to be 180 years old. Yet, the, the least is written about him. In the scripture, there are roughly 12 chapters dedicated or spent on the biblical biographies of Abraham and Jacob and Joseph. But other than just a short mention of Isaac before chapter 26 and a short mention of him after chapter 26, this is the exclusive chapter devoted to the man who reached his spiritual height when he went with his father to Mount Moriah. Remember, we said it was sort of downhill from there for him. Now, Isaac, of course, continued to walk with the Lord, definitely. But as with all of us, his life contained many trials, many tests, many refinings, as we're going to learn from this lesson, which I have entitled, this is the only transparency I have, the testing of Isaac. And this is going to be part one because it's going to take us two lessons to get through these tests. Now, as we mentioned in our study of Abraham, a man's life or a woman's life could easily be written by titling the major trials of their life and then describing how they dealt with those <clears throat> trials. And this is precisely how Isaac's life is recorded for us in Genesis 26. Now, since the events of this chapter took place sometime after Abraham's death, we do know this because of verse 18 tells us Abraham was dead. So this is after Abraham had died. We therefore know that Isaac was at least 75 years old because, remember, his father died at 175. 
So when he died, Isaac was 75 because Isaac was born when Abraham was 100. So in this chapter, if you want to make a note, Abraham is 75 plus years old. I mean, Isaac, this is the prime of his life then, wouldn't you say? If you live to be 180, then 75 is like the prime of your life. He's still relatively a young man. And the chapter can be outlined by titling each of seven trials or tests which were given to Isaac in these prime years of his life. And those seven trials, which we're going to consider the first three in this lesson and then the next four, Lord willing, in the lesson when we get back after our resurrection break, the first um, three are the famine test, the falsehood test, and the fruitfulness test. And then in lesson number 60, we're going to look at the fighting test, the fear test, the forgiveness test, and the failure test. So those are the seven tests we'll be discussing in the life of Isaac. Let's begin with the famine test. And as you can see on your notes or the outline, we have three subdivisions under the famine test, and they are the famine problem, the father's prohibition, and the father's promises. We'll begin with just the famine problem in verse 1. It says, And there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. Actually, I had thought about titling this lesson, Like Father, Like Son, because you're going to see so many similarities in this chapter between Isaac and Abraham. It almost sounds like we're reading, I think it was chapter 21, all over again. Um, but I couldn't title it that because when I opened up Dr. Wearsby's book, that's what he had entitled his chapter, so I didn't want to plagiarize. All right, the first recorded test which came to Isaac after his father's death was what we are calling the famine test. And remember, this also was the test that Abraham faced when he entered into the promised land, and that was back in chapter 12. Now, there were some other similarities in chapter 21, which we'll look at later. In chapter 12, verse 10, Abraham faced a famine test, and that was slightly over one century earlier. Because remember, Isaac, I mean, Abraham had left Haran and gone into the promised land when he was 75 years old. And it was shortly after that that he encountered his famine test. So he was approximately the same age now as his son, roughly 75 years old. Isaac now had not been alive during that prior famine. And consequently, he had never experienced such a thing. He had never before seen firsthand the danger that a famine could bring to one's flocks and herds and uh, to the crops and consequently to his family and to his wealth and to the future of his sons. And this was obviously a severe enough famine that Isaac feared tremendous losses, even possibly bankruptcy. So he was faced with a great decision, as his father before him had been. Would he take the risk of losing all that he had by trusting God? Now, of course, we know he wouldn't have lost if he had trusted God, but would he risk that during the famine and not leave where he was, which was at the well of Laharoi. Remember that in chapter 25, verse 11. That's where he was living. That was sort of in the heartland of the promised land. Would he risk losing everything and stay where he was 
Or would he weaken under the heavy pressure of the famine and move his family and his household and all of his livestock southward as, as his father had done before him? Now, of course, Isaac would have known the story of what had occurred with his parents when they had gone down into Egypt during the time of that earlier famine. It's part of the heritage of truth, which we know was passed down from generation to generation until Moses, you know, compiled all these uh, accounts and put them into the book of Genesis. So we know that he knew about what his father encountered in that famine. So he had ample warning from his father's experience, which we have a lot too. You know, our parents have tr tried to teach us some things via their experience, right? I tried to teach my children some things to avoid because of what I've experienced. But do children often listen? No. <laughs> Unfortunately, they have to learn by going through the same heartaches and troubles and trials that we have. So as, as happens all too frequently, even among believers, even in the lives of believers, the outward pressures, what we could call the circumstances, and in this case it happened to be a famine. It could be a lot of different things, but in this case it was a famine. The outward pressures began to cause an inward pressure. The famine began to get to his flesh, you know, to his carnal nature, and he succumbed to that double assault from the outward pressure and the inward pressure. His faith and even his father's experience, which had been negative and doing the same thing, you know, going south to avoid the famine. So his faith and his father's experience, which we could call a forewarning. So let's put those two F's together. His faith and a forewarning were not strong enough in Isaac to battle the famine and his flesh. Is that a war we have a lot too? The same kind of struggles we have. But he succumbed. And we've already seen that he had a weakness um, in his flesh because we have seen his love for his elder son Esau, who was what kind of a man? A carnal, flesh-minded, fleshly-minded, um, unregenerate person. And, and we've seen Isaac's weakness in the flesh because of his love for savory venison. To the point, you know, that that's why he favored his carnal son. So he had a weakness here in the area of his flesh. In fact, some have even suggested that the famine may well have been God's chastisement because of this particular weakness. So even knowing the grief and the disastrous results that his father's distrust of God during that earlier famine had caused him, had caused his father and his mother, yet Isaac headed south into the seacoast land occupied by the early Philistines. And where did he go? He went to the city of Gerar, near, right near to the Egyptian border. I don't know if you have maps in the back of your Bible, but maybe you could look it up. It's right. The Egyptian border used to come a lot further toward um, Palestine than it does today. But Gerar was right there on the border. Now, from where he had been living, which was, you know, still near to the well Lahai Roy, that would have been about a 75-mile trip southward. Now, apparently, we do find that he was planning to travel even further south, not that he wasn't going to stay in Gerar. He was going to go further south into Egypt. 
just like his dad had done. And we can assume this by the fact that God had to intervene in the situation to prevent Isaac from going into Egypt. And that's what we read about in the next verse, verse 2, the father's prohibition. Let's look at verse 2. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. In this verse... God both appeared and spoke to Isaac for the very first time. You might want to make a note of that. This is the very first time God appeared to Isaac and spoke to Isaac. You know, before he has appeared, it was, he was speaking to Abraham, his father, like up on Mount Moriah. We don't even know if, if Isaac saw the angel of the Lord or heard him. So this is the first time he's speaking directly to Isaac. And what was it to do? It was to command him not to go down into Egypt, but to dwell in the land. Now, Isaac, of course, had enough reverential fear of the Lord to know better than to disobey such a direct command. We've got to give him credit for that. The Lord appeared to him. The Lord spoke to him, said not to do it. So he was enough of a a godly man to definitely obey him. So um, he did not go into Egypt. Remember, in Scripture, what does Egypt represent? The world. It represents the world. Isaac, a believer, was not to forsake the promised land to go instead to what might appear to be a better place, you know, to the markets of the world. He must not compromise his hope for the eternal and the lasting in order to gain from the possessions and the riches of the earthly and the temporal. But... God gave him much more than just a prohibition. God usually does this. He followed that prohibition, that command, with a great promise. And what follows in verses 3 to 5 is then God's first direct confirmation to Isaac that the Abrahamic covenant would be continued in him. I mean, he knew that, but this is the first time God is directly telling him that he would inherit the Abrahamic covenant. So let's look at verses, uh, not three to five, three to six, okay? It says, sojourn, or the Lord says, sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries. Not meaning, you know, inside of Canaan were different, we could call them countries, but they were different um, groups of peoples, you know, like the land of the Philistines. It's still all the promised land, but within there, there were these different provinces of people. So that's what the the word countries means. I will give thee all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father, and I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And Isaac dwelt in Gerar. The Lord here told Isaac to sojourn in the land where he would lead him, or which he would tell him of, and he would bless him, and he would bless his seed with all the blessings that he had promised his father Abraham. Now the blessings earlier given to Abraham in many different places in in previous chapters, were then reiterated succinctly to Isaac. And uh, he was basically told that his descendants would multiply as, what, 
the stars of heaven and that he would give his descendants all those the countries or the small groups of peoples that had settled in the promised land he would give him all those territories and he would bless all the nations of the world through his seed now what was that a promise of right that the messiah would come through his line that was a promise of the messianic line and these were all of the promises of not all of them but succinctly stated these were the promises of the abrahamic covenant and it's interesting to note that the lord ended his words you notice by saying by telling isaac that he would do all these things because of abraham i think that's in verse five it says because that abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge my commandments my statutes and my laws this verse and this is interesting too this verse contains the very first reference in the bible to laws very first so you might want to circle that and right next to it the hebrew word does anybody know what the hebrew word for law is what do they call the first five books of the bible right it's the hebrew word torah this is the first time the word torah appears in the bible now of course god's laws were not yet in written form at the time of isaac as they would be you know later on through moses he would he would put them into written form under divine inspiration however abraham knew god's laws you know not all the little nitty-gritty but he knew the basic laws of god from both god's voice because god spoke to him audibly and also from the fact that the laws of god are intuitively known in the human heart romans 2 15 tells us that even the gentiles that speaks of those who didn't have the law the mosaic law even the gentiles show the work of the law written where in their hearts i mean everybody knows it's wrong to murder it's wrong to have adultery i mean it's wrong to steal you don't have to write a law down you we know that intuitively because god has written those laws in our hearts so that which abraham heard audibly from god he obeyed and that which he did not audibly hear he still obeyed those commands those statutes and laws which were written in his heart now we know he had failed at times but overall his life abraham's life was characterized by faith and by obedience and god was now saying essentially that he expected the same thing from his son and from all future generations who would seek to know God's blessings. Now, some commentators have stated that it was something of a, a rebuke, a divine rebuke to Isaac that the Lord said he was going to fulfill his promises not because of Isaac's faithfulness and Isaac's obedience, but because of whose? Because of Abraham's. So perhaps this was a warning on God's part to Isaac that he needed to be more like his father not in the bad ways which he's copying he's emulating but in the good ways he needs to be more like his father perhaps on the other hand there is nothing negative meant by God's statement that he would bless Isaac for Abraham's sake and after this is repeated in verse 24 of this chapter you can see at the end of verse 24 it says he would multiply his seed for my servant abraham's sake so twice in this chapter god tells isaac that he will bless him because of abraham but maybe there's nothing negative about that after all the promises were first given to abraham and the lord may have merely been reminding isaac that he was heir to abraham's spiritual legacy 
After all, we as believers, we are blessed for whose sake? For the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And do we consider that a rebuke? No, we consider it not a rebuke at all, but a great privilege. So, I don't know, God, God may have been attempting to be a means of encouragement to Isaac in his time of testing regarding this famine. So I'm going to leave that up to you. I think that's one of your homework questions to decide whether you think it was a rebuke or not. By mentioning five ways in which Abraham was obedient. Let's look at those five ways. What are they? He obeyed his voice. He kept his charge. He kept his commandments. He kept his statutes and he kept his laws. That's five. By mentioning five, and remember in the Bible, five represents, it's a number that symbolizes grace. Right. Right, Christy, you're always good at numbers, aren't you? (laughs) So by mentioning five ways in which Abraham was obedient, God, in his grace, might have been trying to refocus Isaac to trust and obey him, you know, to, to put his faith in God's grace. Surely, you know, God would not allow Isaac or his family or his herds or his flocks to perish in a famine, would he? Of course he wouldn't. He'd already promised his father that his descendants would be blessed and they would flourish and they would inherit all the land, etc., etc. So there's no way that God was going to allow them to perish. So he should have trusted in God's grace. Well, this is the famine test. How, do, how would you, if you were the teacher, how would you score Isaac on this famine te- the test? Well, obviously, he at least passed I mean, he at least got a C minus <laughs> because he did not go down into Egypt as his father had done before him. But does this mean that he did better than his father as far as his trust of God in the famine tests? Not really, because you see his father had not been directly stopped from going into Egypt by God. Do you think if God had told Abraham audibly not to go into Egypt that he would have gone anyway? No, I don't believe so at all. Um, So it's not really a great tribute here to Isaac's faith that he did not continue into Gerar, I mean from Gerar into Egypt. Actually, uh, in scoring Isaac on the famine test, we would have to say that although he passed, in that he didn't go into Egypt, yet neither did he turn around and go back up into the heartland of Canaan, back to the well of Lahairoi, where there was a famine and where he would rely on God's grace and trust in God. Instead, what we find is really a half-hearted obedience to God's command. God had told Isaac to sojourn in the land where he would lead him or where he would direct him. However, we find that Isaac did not give God an opportunity to lead him because he stayed right where he was in Gerar. Rather than sojourning, we are told in verse 6 that he dwelt in Gerar. And also we discover that if you look at verse 8, we haven't gotten there, but he dwelt there a long time, which doesn't sound like sojourning at all, does it? So Isaac obeyed God, but only partially. He didn't go into Egypt, yet neither did he return to the heart of the promised land and trust God in the midst of a famine. He stayed in Gerar, which, remember, is on the border of Egypt, 
between, you know, it's right on the border there between Canaan and Egypt. He got, so he's like a lot of Christians. <laughs> he got just as close to the world as he possibly could get and still not be, uh, you know, still not be directly disobeying God. He was what we call a fence rider, a border setter. <laughs> Have you ever known a border setter? <laughs> but half-hearted obedience to God doesn't bring blessing. It usually brings further problems. You know, try it for a while. Don't try it, but <laughs> it will bring um, more problems. Yeah, I'm sure we've all found that out in our Christian lives when you try to, to uh, j get just as close to the world as you can in your behavior and your actions and your attitudes or your lifestyle. You're going to have further problems, guaranteed. In choosing to live among the Philistines... Near to the border of the Egyptians, Isaac was placing himself in a position where he would be tempted to do what? Compromise. There are three indications. Now listen up because this is another question. I'm being so good to you this morning. <laughs> yes, it's resurrection, so I'm going to be nice to you. There are three indications in the rest of chapter 26 which seem to confirm that it was a mistake for Isaac to have settled in Gerar. First indication is his sin. The next thing we see is his sin about Rebecca. He lied about his relationship with his wife. So when he lived in Gerar among the Philistines, he was tempted to compromise, and he did. He told an out-and-out -out lie. So that's an indication that it was a mistake to be where he was. Secondly, the conflict which arose between him and the Philistines, and we'll read about this later this morning as we look at verses 16 to 21. When he stayed in Gerar, eventually there was battles, there was troubles between him and the Philistines. And the third reason is, if you look at verses 23 and 24, the Lord appeared to Isaac to strengthen him. When do you think? While he was in Gerar? No, he appeared to him to strengthen him on the very night that he finally moved back into the heartland of Canaan. So these three reasons, these three circumstances indicate to us that it was a mistake for him to have been in Gerar. And I just answered a question for you. All right, let's move on now to uh, the falsehood test. And under the falsehood test, we're going to look at the falsehood repeated, meaning he repeated the same a lie that his father had um, made on two occasions. Then we're going to look at the falsehood revealed. He gets caught. Be sure your sin will find you out. And then the falsehood rebuked. So let's begin with the falsehood repeated, verse 7. And the men of the place asked him of his wife. Now this would be the Philistine men. And he said, here we go, she is my sister. For he feared to say, she is my wife, lest, said he, this is him rationalizing to himself, lest, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebecca because she was fair to look upon. Okay, just that one verse. Isaac could have told the truth about his relationship with Rebecca and everything would have been fine. God would have protected them from harm. Actually, even the king, whose title was Abimelech, remember that Abimelech was not a name, it was a title, because there was an earlier Abimelech, it's not the same man, you know, because that was like a hundred years earlier. 
but the king would have protected them. And we find this is true. Even the king would have protected them. If you look at verse 11. So there was no reason for why Isaac felt compelled to lie about Rebekah when, when some men, I don't know if these were men from the king's palace or, or who they were, but when some men asked him about Rebecca, Instead of repeating the same lie that his father had used on two occasions, the first time in Egypt and the second time right there in the exact same place, you know, in Gerar to another Abimelech, he, um, instead, he, where, what was I saying? <laughs> he, he lied. He, he, he could have, he could have told the truth, truth but instead, um, he, he lied and uh, said that she was his sister when in fact she was his God-given wife. Yet knowing of his father's same error on those two different occasions, Isaac repeated the exact same sin. That's why like we say like father, like son, or like mother, like daughter. <laughs> and he even actually, and this is often true, um, sometimes the children go even a step further than the parents and their sin is a little bit worse and this was certainly true here because he went a step further than his father Abraham because when Abraham had said that Sarah was his sister it was half true <laughs> of course a half truth is still a lie his his sin Abraham's sin was really the sin of de willful deception because uh, Sarah was his half sis sister but he was purposely deceiving the, the Philistines in telling them that although she was his sister, she was also his wife. But when Isaac told the Philistines that Rebekah was his sister, that wasn't even half true because she wasn't his sister. She wasn't even his half-sister. She was his second cousin. So it was a total lie. Now, why did he speak a lie? Well... He must have rationalized in his own mind, as is usually the case when somebody sins, they, they try to rationalize it. He rationalized that it was necessary. And, you know, we know his father had done exactly the same thing. His father had rationalized that it was absolutely necessary. Isaac figured that the Philistine men would kill him in order to get Rebekah if they knew that she was his wife. Now, remember, we had been told that Rebecca, back in um, chapter 24, verse 16, when Eliezer first met her out at the well, we were told that she was very fair to look upon. She was a beautiful woman. And still now, many years later, when she was perhaps somewhere between 45 and 60, I, you know, I don't know. I, I'm assuming when they married, Isaac was 40. She was probably at least 20 years younger than him. She could have even been like 15, as far as we know, because that, that was common to do. So let's say she's anywhere between 45 and 60. I just don't know. But she's still described as, verse 7, fair to look upon. You notice there's a word missing. <laughs> very. The word very. So she's, you know, she's digressed a little bit because she's not called very fair. She's just fair to look upon. But she was still beautiful enough for men to ask about her. And that's pretty good at 45 to 60, wouldn't you say? Now, as with the two situations in which Abraham had lied about his relationship with Sarah, Isaac here was being very selfish. Right, women? Very selfish. His concern was not for Rebecca. It was for number one, numero uno, himself. Surely, now think about this, surely... He knew how, remember how close he was with his mother, Sarah? Surely he knew how his mother had been placed into 
the harems of both the Egyptian pharaoh and an earlier king, Abimelech, of uh, Gerar. And surely, as much as we know he loved his mother, it must have angered him greatly uh, when he became older to understand all these things that his father would have done such a thing to her, you know, risked her, uh, well, she wasn't a virgin, well, risked her reputation (laughs) and all, you know, defiled her. Surely, also, he would not put his own wife into such a peril as had angered him that his father had done with his mother. And yet, guess what? He did. So what do we, I mean, all we can say is that the heart truly is deceitful above all things. In fact, um, we can almost be certain that he probably rationalized the situation something like this. This is him talking. Well, father got caught, but I won't. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to be really careful. I will not let them come and take Rebecca. I'll keep watch over her at all times, and I'll have my servants constantly surrounding our home. She'll never get taken. Besides, even though father had to encounter embarrassment, at least he and mother came out alive. Actually, they even benefited greatly from that ex- those experiences because both Pharaoh and Abimelech lavished great wealth on them because God intervened and he even spared mother from being defiled or touched. So that might have been his reasoning. And we're told um, in verse 8, did I read that? No, I didn't. Let's read verse 8. And it came to pass when he had been there a long time. All right, I just want to read that to you. We're told there that his lie went undetected for a long time. And that's interesting because it seems to tell us that his fears were not fully justified. Now, Abraham's fears were fully justified because he wasn't in Egypt very long at all when they came and got Sarah and put her in Pharaoh's harem. Same thing when he was in Gerar. They came right away and took Sarah. But uh, no one for a long time came to take Rebekah. Actually, no one ever did come to take Rebekah away or to try to negotiate with Isaac for his sister's hand in marriage. You see, if they thought she was his sister, somebody would have come to negotiate and arrange a marriage. In fact, so much time elapsed where he dwelt in Gerar that he actually began to let down his guard when it came to living out his lie. You know, if, if you have to live out a lie, that is very, very difficult to do for a long time and not become careless in, uh, you know, not having your lie exposed. It's a particularly sad day when a believer's lie is exposed by the unsaved, by the unbeliever. And it's, it's shameful not only to the name of God, but it's shameful to his glory. It's shameful also, of course, to the believer. And it brings reproach on other believers as well, because we're all associated together, aren't we? You know, we're not an island unto ourselves. And the witness for God is, is marred so that the ones who were lied to have very little interest in then becoming believers themselves. Because, you know, G- because Jesus Christ himself is called the truth, he is the truth, 
John 14, 6. And because the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth, and because God's Word is the truth, then the last thing believers should do is tell lies, right? Who is the father of lies? Satan, not, not God. So it's just bad all the way around when a believer lies. So we're going to turn next now to see how his falsehood was detected and revealed by none other than the king himself, Abimelech himself. He had, Isaac, we find, as we read verse 8, uh, 8 and 9, we find that not only he, had he settled in the land of the Philistines right on the border of Egypt, but... He dwelt in their chief city, and apparently he lived right next door to the royal palace of the king, the Philistine king. Let's look at verses 8 and 9, the falsehood revealed. And it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out at a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. I like that word, sporting sporting with his wife and Abimelech called Isaac and said behold of a surety she is thy wife and how saidest thou she is my sister and Isaac said unto him because I said lest I die for her <laughs> Abimelech the Philistine king was apparently uh, looking out his window the window who does that remind you of David <laughs> uh, he was looking out the window of his palace one day when he saw Isaac sporting with Rebekah, his wife. Now, whether they were in another building adjacent to the palace and the king saw them through their open window, you know, shame, shame, they should have pulled their blinds down, but he got careless. Uh, or if they were down, some people say they were, maybe were down below in a garden. I don't know. And that's really not important. But what is important is that Abimelech instantly... As soon as he saw them, he knew that Isaac's longtime lie uh, was indeed a lie regarding his relationship to Rebekah. Because what he saw of their behavior, you know, the behavior between the couple, he, he was left with no doubt whatsoever that they were not merely brother and sister. Now, what were they doing? Well, the word sporting, the verb sporting with in Hebrew... And this is interesting, actually comes from the same root word as the name Isaac. Isn't that neat? Isaac was Isaacing with his wife. <laughs> so what does the word Isaac mean? Laughter. All right. They were apparently laughing and playing and caressing or he was with his wife and I thought oh isn't that sweet you know after it I really I thought that was kind of nice after some 40 years or so of marriage that they were still like this they were still very much in love anyway Abimelech knew that this what they were doing was an intimate love you know more than just the love between a brother and a sister now, of course, the first thing that Abimelech did was to call for Isaac and ask him to give an account for why he had lied to him about his wife. And we find his certainty about his discovery in his words, Behold, of a surety, she is thy wife. I mean, Abimelech, there was no doubt about it. Abimelech knew that they were husband and wife. So whatever he had seen, it convinced him. Now, Abimelech, of course, was indignant here, and rightfully so. He, he obviously knew 
what had happened to a former Abimelech, a former ruler who was most likely either his father or his grandfather, um, and how his life, you know, either his father or his grandfather's life and, and the lives of his people had been put in great peril, great danger from God because of Abraham's lie regarding Sarah. That's written up in um, chapter 20. You know how, remember, they, they almost died. Abimelech almost died. God threatened him with his life, and uh, he feared for the lives of his, the people of his nation as well. And now, and, and Abimelech would have known. The second Abimelech or third Abimelech would have known about that. And the very same thing now he realized might have happened to him as well and to his people because of Abraham's son's exact same lie. You know, wouldn't you say, what is it with these people? These are supposed to be godly people. What is it with them? So just like his predecessor, Abimelech rebuked Isaac as the other one had rebuked Abraham. So let's look at the falsehood rebuked. Um, the, the interesting thing, I this is just free, I'm throwing it out. That, remember last time Sarah was rebuked also. We don't see Rebecca being rebuked here, only Isaac. So I, I wondered if she even knew about this lie. She's such a strong-willed, kind of, in a lot of ways, more godly than um, her husband. I, I don't know. Maybe she wouldn't have allowed the lie to, to go on. That's just speculation, so you can't be dogmatic about it. Let's look at the falsehood rebuke, verses 10 and 11. And Abimelech said, What is this thou hast done unto us? One of the people might lightly have lying with thy wife, and thou shouldest have brought guiltiness upon us. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He that toucheth, 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 <laughs> he that touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Well, Isaac had uh, no excuse as we saw at the end of where was it end of verse 9 he had no excuse for his lie other than his fear uh, which was obviously ungrounded because as i mentioned earlier no one had come to get rebecca even after a long time now abimelech's question he says what is this thou hast done unto us that's a very very similar question to what the former abimelech had asked abraham if you want to compare it in 20 chapter 20 verse 9 the former abimelech had asked of abraham what hast thou done unto us almost identical question it's also similar to god's own question of eve back in the garden when he had said to her or asked her what is this that thou hast done same question it's a question that we really should ask of ourselves whenever we have sinned because maybe if we ask ourselves that question it would help us to realize exactly what we have done i mean sin is what sends people to hell sin is what is separated put mankind in the terrible plight he's in you know where we are separated apart from a holy God and can only be reconciled to him because, uh, through Jesus Christ. And it has also done immense damage to man's relationship to his fellow man, right? Sin never builds up. Sin always, always destroys. So when we sin, we should always ask the question, what is this that we have done? So Isaac's sin 
um, not only could it have brought great harm to Rebecca and defiled her had it not been for God's gracious protection, but it also could have brought great harm to the Philistines. And you see, Abimelech knew that because he knew the previous history of what had happened before with Abraham. And this is the subject he addressed in verse 11, where he told Isaac how his lie had endangered them, meaning the Philistine people. If some Philistine had, you know, not knowing any better, had taken Rebekah, lightly lined with her, thinking that she was Isaac's sister, then guiltiness would have been brought upon all of the Philistines. Now, Abimelech's use of the word guiltiness, which is asham in Hebrew, it actually suggests the idea of religious guilt by having uh, uh, violated that which is holy or that which is forbidden. The thought here seems to be that Abimelech feared what the God of Isaac would do to all the Philistines if any of them had committed adultery with Rebekah. He, Abimelech obviously had more fear of Isaac's God than Isaac had given him credit for. And he also had higher standards of morality than Isaac had also given him credit for. So either Isaac was a very poor judge of character, and was that true? Think of his sons. Yes, he's definitely a very poor judge of character. Or else the... Um, and this may be, both of these may be true. Um, the Philistines may have had a different standard when it came to Isaac, the son of Abraham. Because they knew what had happened when Abraham had been amongst them and how they had all been endangered so much because of God's protection over Abraham. And now Isaac was his son, and they knew that. The people of Gerar, as I said, of course, heard the account how the earlier Abimelech and his nation had been at risk of dying. And perhaps this is why they had stayed clear a long time of who? Of Rebekah. Perhaps this is why they hadn't, you know, gone to Rebekah and taken, carried her away as they had with Sarah. Um, at any rate, after receiving an admission of guilt from Isaac, Abimelech then gave the strictest of orders to all of his people. He made a decree that anyone who touched either Isaac or his wife would be what? Right, put to death, verse 11. And in doing this, Isaac and Rebekah became fully protected by the king's decree. But at the same time, you know, when he made this decree, at the very same time that they were being fully protected, they were also being fully exposed before all the people because people would say, well, why is this? And then, you know, everyone would become aware of Isaac's lie. They would find out that Rebekah was his wife and not his sister. Now, the sense of shame for Isaac, we would think then would have been very great because he was exposed before everyone. Worse, however, was that his testimony was destroyed. A God who had such deceitful servants was no better in the Philistines' minds than their own gods. So why turn to their God when they had gods that were just, you know, the same, had, had deceitful servants just like the God of Isaac? Now, as we move on to the third test in Isaac's life, um, or at least at this time in his life, we come to what I've called the fruitfulness test. 
and comparing the son to the father, we discovered that there was a repeat in exactly the same order of what Abraham had encountered, as I said before, when he was approximately the exact same age that we find Isaac is in this chapter, 75 plus years. Just like Abraham, Isaac had been faced with a famine, all right, we've already seen that, in which he failed to trust God and went south, just like his father had done. Of course, he didn't go into Egypt because uh, he had been divinely stopped from going into Egypt. But he did leave the heart of Canaan in a lack of faith, and he lived instead among the Philistines in Gerar. Out of the will of God, then both father and son were tempted to compromise by lying about their wives. Both miserably failed the falsehood test. You know, if you're, if you're, again, the teacher and you're giving them a grade on this one, they got Fs. They both failed by saying their wives were merely their sisters. Yet in spite of the sins of both Abraham and Isaac, God blessed them. I mean, he had promised he would do that, and God always keeps his promises. So with greatly increased goods, that's what we're going to see next. Remember, uh, uh, Abraham was blessed by Pharaoh because he gave him all kinds of maidservants and men servants and silver and gold. And even when he went to Gerar and lied the second time about Sarah, the king lavished all kinds of gifts on him. So even though they lied, they were blessed. And now we're going to see that just like his father, Isaac is also greatly increased in his goods. So just like his father, he next encounters what we could call the fortune test or what I'm calling in this lesson, the fruitfulness test. Uh, so let's look at that um, in verses, what do we look at next? 12 to 18, and uh, we're going to look first of all at the enrichment of Isaac, and then in uh, the last section of our lesson today, we'll look at the envy of Isaac. And we're going to learn how he fared with God's increased blessings upon his life, and also how this increased prosperity affected his relationship with his neighbors. Let's begin with the enrichment of Isaac, verses 12 to the first part of verse 14. Verse 12, then Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year an hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great. And he had possession of flocks and possessions of herds and great store of servants. All right, I'm going to end there. Remember in my prayer, I said, God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. They're, I mean, we might read this and say, why in the world would he be blessed when he had told a lie and been, you know, so ashamed in front of the unbelievers and ruined his testimony for God? But we find that the Lord greatly enriched Isaac and there may have been several reasons for this. He may have done this because he had promised to be with him and to bless him. Remember back in verse 3. And as I just said, God always keeps his promises. God blessed Isaac as he had said also for whose sake? Not because of his sake, but for Abraham's sake. Just as he blesses us, not because we deserve it, but he blesses us for Christ's sake. It's most probable that Isaac, after having been exposed, you know, by Abimelech 
for his lie, it's, it's very most probable that he did finally confess that lie, that sin, to God, and that God then blessed him for doing that. Or God may have enriched Isaac in order to get him to separate from the Philistines among whom he did not belong. What happened in Abraham's life after he was richly blessed by Pharaoh in Egypt and he came back into the land? What was the very next thing that happened? Huh? Was a, there was a separation because, remember, he had so much and Lot had so much and God used that wealth to do what he had wanted Abraham to do all along, to separate from all of his kinfolk. And so he was separated from Lot. So perhaps God is purposely enriching Isaac here in order to separate him from the Philistines, among whom he didn't belong. As long as he lived among the Philistines there on the border of Egypt, he was still only half-heartedly following the Lord. God... Um, as I said, had used that same kind of a situation, increased wealth to separate Abraham and Lot, and perhaps that's what he was going to do here to get Isaac away from living on the edge, you know, live, riding the fence between um, the church and the world. Now we're told, notice in verse 12, that Isaac sowed. Isaac sowed. Now this is the very first mention of seed sowing in all the Bible, right here. So, what, so, <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. So, what does this mean? This means that Isaac became a farmer as well as a rancher. As far as we can tell, Abraham had never become a farmer. Do we ever read about Abraham sowing? Now, I'm sure he had, you know, vegetable garden and stuff like that. But this, we're talking about big time sowing here with Isaac. As far as we know, Abraham never became a farmer. He had flocks and he had herds and he lived a nomadic life, you know, moving from place to place. Isaac, of course, had inherited his father's flocks and herds and livestock. But now in Gerar, where he had been living for a long time, he begins sowing seed. He's settling down. Now, it's worth reminding ourselves that God had told Isaac to look back at verse 3, to sojourn in the land where he would show him if you look at the end of verse 2 but what did Isaac do he settled down I mean he dwelt a long time and now we find he's even becoming a farmer yet in spite of his disobedience God prospered him although Isaac sowed his seed in the very same soil as the Philistines and although they all shared the same amount of sunshine and rain Yet Isaac reaped a far greater harvest. In fact, the greatest harvest anyone can reap, a hundredfold. Not only did Isaac's crops do exceeding well, but everything else also waxed great. His herds and his flocks started multiplying more abundantly than anybody else's. And it says he gained a great store of servants. And he already had... They speculate he could have had as many as a thousand inherited from his father. And now he's, he's gaining a great store of servants. And God saw fit to um, conspicuously bless him at every turn until, it says in verse 13, until he became very great. And he was already very great. So you can just imagine the wealth, even wealthier than his father now. Yet in a way, 
we could say that these great material blessings may, may well have been part of Isaac's chastisement for having stayed where he should not have stayed and for having lied when he should not have lied. You say, well, how can blessings and a hundredfold crop be chastisement? Well, because increased wealth proved not only to bring problems and contentions in his life. You know, it's not always a good thing, is it, to get really, really rich. That's not, it, it, you see it a lot. It, dry, it takes people away from church. It takes them away from relying on God. That's the problem with this country. People are just, they don't need, they don't see their need for God because they've got their portfolios and, and they feel secure in that. So uh, he began to prosper so greatly that he was beginning to be a threat to Abimelech and his power and his wealth. And the Philistines began to envy him. That's another problem with increased wealth. I know that there's other reasons for why the Arab nations hate us so much. But one reason is because of envy. They are jealous of all that we have in this country. Let's look at the envy of Isaac, verses uh, 14b to 18, where it says at the end of verse 14, And the Philistines envied him for all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham. His father, the Philistines, had stopped them and filled them with earth. And Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. And Isaac departed thence and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar. The last time we read about pitching a tent was when Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. And now here we find Isaac pitching, pitching his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac digged again the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. And he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. So he redug his father's wells and, and gave them the exact same names his father had given to them. The obvious prosperity of Isaac in everything that he did soon gained him the inevitable fruit of envy. The visible wealth of the man only added to the vexation which the Philistines probably already felt about him uh, due to their maybe perhaps due to their king's unparalleled protection of him with the death penalty. I mean, why should an outsider be permitted such special privileges when all he had done was move in on them, lie to them, put them in great jeopardy? You know, he could have done, it could have happened to them what had happened earlier when Abraham had come. And then get increasingly wealthier in front of them to the point where he could pose a threat, a possible threat to their own national security. The, the growing hostility among some of the Philistines was finally vented. I mean, they, didn't, they couldn't touch him. They didn't dare touch him because the death of the death penalty. But they could touch his wells. There was no decree against the wells. So they began to um, fill up the wells which Abraham had previously dug. Isaac, they realized that Isaac couldn't prosper. You know, his crops and his livestock and even his family couldn't prosper without the, the absolute necessity of water. So they, uh, they plugged up the wells, hoping that this would force 
Isaac out of Gerar. So in an effort to cripple Isaac's farming and his ranching operations, raiding parties were sent forth to damage his water supply. What they did is they just took earth, you know, dirt, and filled up the wells. And this not only greatly affected Isaac's uh, business, but it put a rift in his formerly peaceful relationship with his neighbors, the Philistines. Apparently, even the king, even Abimelech, finally realized the potential threat that Isaac was becoming to his own power and his own security, the security of his kingdom. You know, maybe he was fearing that he would lose his kingdom. And so he finally went to Isaac and he asked him to leave. He said, go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. This reminded me of um, a similar situation which happens in the book of Exodus in chapter 1 when uh, God blessed the Israelites when they were over in Egypt, you know, as slaves. Remember how he began to multiply them and they, they were just becoming so many that it began to threaten um, Pharaoh's feelings of security. He thought, well, th- these people are going to become so powerful they might just revolt and take over. And um, God, again, used his blessings to get his people where he wanted them. Because we know that Pharaoh didn't say, get out. They wished he had, but eventually he did. Eventually he let them go under uh, Moses and, you know, the Moses and the ten plagues convinced him to let them go. So at any rate, Isaac must have had a, uh, a great household of servants, as I said before, to present a threat to the king of the Philistines. Now, we do have to realize here that the Philistines at this point in time most of the the Philistines still lived over on the island of Crete. They so don't get the idea that they moved in large numbers to Palestine um, at this point at, at the t- time of Isaac. It wasn't until many centuries later that the Philistines left Crete and came over to the land of Canaan. So don't um, picture in your mind a Philistine army the size of it, that it was under the the days of King David and Goliath. Remember, Goliath was a Philistine. So the Philistines were much smaller so that Isaac's great household of servants actually posed a threat to his little kingdom. So how did Isaac do when it came to the fruitfulness test? Did he pass it as his father had done when when Abraham had given Lot first choice of land? Remember when their herdsmen began to quarrel with one another because there just wasn't enough land? Uh, Abraham passed that fruitfulness test. He, he passed it with flying colors. He took the bad land. He let Abraham have what looked like the good land. Well, Isaac did pass this test. So the answer is yes. He reacted well. So we could give him an A on this test because uh, his response to Abimelech was good. Abimelech asked him to leave. Maybe he didn't really get an A, though. Let's look a little closer. Um, but he got an A as far as the fact that he didn't resist. He could have resisted the king's demand based on the treaty. Remember the treaty his father had made with the former Abimelech? A treaty which gave Abraham and his descendants the right to live anywhere in the land? That's probably why Isaac went down there. Because of that treaty, he knew he could go live in Gerar because his father had made a treaty back in chapter 20, verse 15, that said he could live in the land anywhere. Um, But he didn't resist the king's demand by using that treaty. 
Um, and he also responded well with the Philistines because he didn't launch an attack against them. I mean, he could have gone after the ones that filled up his wells and, um, and killed them all. But he didn't even demonstrate resentment. Remember, what kind of a man is Isaac? Right. He's more of a passive, submissive kind of a guy. And so we find that he simply moved away. Unfortunately, this is why I say, well, maybe he didn't get an A. Unfortunately, he still did not return to the heartland of Canaan, did he? He merely moved further up the valley of Gerar, says in verse 17. He, uh, also, we find that he, he did not intend to sojourn in the land, you know, move from place to place, because, again, it tells us in verse 17 that he dwelt there. So, again, he put down roots. He, instant, he intended to stay near Gerar. He pitched his tent there, and then he redug the wells which his father had dug many years before, wells which, uh, since Abraham's death had been stopped up by the Philistines. According to the understood law in those days, a well belonged to whoever dug it. You know, the original creator of the well was the one who owned it from thenceforth. Now, the Philistine settlers on the outskirts of the city of Gerar were apparently, as I said, not numerous and not prosperous enough to need Abraham's wells. But in order to discourage other people from settling in those areas outside of Gerar, they had filled them up. So they had done this when they got word that Abraham... I think they were afraid to do it while Abraham was still living, because maybe Abraham's God would do something to them. But once they got word that Abraham died, they filled those wells up to discourage anybody from moving out to that area. But Isaac goes out there and he redigs the well. But they did wait till Abraham was dead. Um... So Isaac moved away. Oh, and another thing, you know, this, it might be, another reason the Philistines might have waited until Abraham's death before filling up his wells probably had to do, as I said, with the special protection that Abraham's God had given him, you know, the one and true living God, a protection which had been enough to cause them to fear doing any harm to Abraham or his property while he was still alive. And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, well, maybe this is why they did not ever touch Rebekah or go and take Rebekah. Because what had Isaac said to them? He had told them that Rebekah was his sister. Therefore, in their thinking, Rebekah was the daughter of Abraham, right? So would they dare to touch her? No way. So I think that's why they didn't touch her, because they honestly thought that she was Abraham's daughter. And uh, that's why they didn't touch even his wells until after he was dead. So Isaac moved away, realizing that any resistance would only further alienate him from the Philistines and with their king. As his father had done when his herdsmen had contended with, contended with Lot's herdsmen, he maintained peace at all costs. Isaac let the Philistines have the best land, and he took up new residence in the valley of Gerar. And the word for valley is Nahal, which actually means dry valley. 
So this was a dry valley. He did indeed take the worst land. He gave them the best. He took the dry valley of Gerar. And of course, he needed to redig the wells desperately. However, if he thought that doing this, just moving further away to the valley of Gerar, if he thought that would bring him peace and that the Philistines would now leave him alone, guess what? He had still a lot to learn, not only about the Philistines, but he had a lot to learn about God. You see, his move to the valley of Gerar still didn't put him where God wanted him. He did not go back into the heartland of Canaan. He was still staying just as close to the fringe of Egypt as he possibly could. He was still compromised by living in proximity to the capital city of the Philistines, who represented also unregenerate mankind, just like the Egyptians did. The Philistines represented the natural man. So Isaac was still... As we close up this lesson, he was still out of the will of the Lord. The only way to get back in God's will was to return all the way to where he had been when the famine came to the land. To remain on the edge was not good enough for God because God knew that it wasn't good for Isaac. So in our next lesson, um, which will be April 9th, we will see that Isaac did not encounter the peace that he had hoped for when he moved to the outskirts of Gerar. Rather, there would still be further strife and further contention with the Philistines who God was using in order to finally get Isaac back to where he needed to be. And so we'll see eventually Isaac does move back. All right, thank you for your patience. We'll close in a word of prayer. Father, again, I thank you for this opportunity. May we never take it for granted, the opportunity we have to, to assemble together to study your word. Thank you for that great blessing that we have in this country. And may we keep that freedom, Father, at all costs. And Father, may we as believers do our very best not to live on the edge between the church and the world, not to ride the fence, not to be border setters, but to come out from among them and be ye separate. Help us, Father, not to pitch our tent toward Gerar, to have our eyes focused on Sodom, as either Isaac or Lot did, because we know that that's a position which brings great danger, danger of compromise, because we're tempted to, uh, to compromise with the world and to destroy our testimony for you and, and to rationalize our misappropriate behavior. We see this over and over again in the scripture and we know we, you have given us these people to learn from and I pray that we would learn from them, that we would live holy, separated lives which are pleasing to you. May we realize, Father, that we are just sojourners passing through, that our true citizenship is in heaven, and may we be storing treasures there where it really counts, where, where nothing can destroy them. And Father, help us again uh, just to focus on you, especially at this time of year when we celebrate the Lord's resurrection from the dead, which gives us the, the hope and just the, the foundation of our faith and, and, and just the joy of, of living and takes the sting out of death and, and the victory from the grave and just is everything to us. Father, thank you that there is an empty tomb over there in Jerusalem and that at this moment the Lord Jesus sits at your right hand getting ready to return again to this world and to take us with him. 
Father, there's so much to be thankful for about being a Christian. If there's one here who is not a Christian, thinks she is perhaps, but is not sure, I pray that she would settle that this very day by going to her leader or coming to me, and we can take care of that. We will give you the praise for it. Thank you for your word. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.